storm chasing this past season. We were uh, on a storm in southern Kansas, not even time to respond. Um, and the air started to sizzle and flash and bang, and it was just, uh, I don't even know where it ended up hitting, but it was really, really close. <laughs> Welcome to Weathering the Run. No matter how far you're heading out to run, no matter the location or time of day you're out there, there's one thing you always have to deal with, and that's the weather. I'm Andrew Buckmichael, a meteorologist, and I love running. Sometimes the weather's perfect and you just want to keep going on forever. But other times, Mother Nature may take a turn for the worse and you're left to the elements. That's what we're here to do. Hear stories of the craziest weather some runners have experienced and what they may change if given a rerun. So lace up your shoes as we go along with them, weathering the run. What is up, everyone? I am stoked to bring you today's guest. We're continuing our little mini-series talking to meteorologists who also run. And today we're talking with Dr. Jana Hauser from Ohio State. She's a researcher, and I saw her give a talk at a symposium earlier this year about how tornadoes form, and it flipped what I thought I knew, and it flipped it upside down. So I'm excited to really get into the details here. So hopefully you're doing well today, Dr. Hauser. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. How about yourself? Doing pretty well, doing pretty well. Uh, I'm really excited because I was lucky enough to hear uh, your talk last year at the Ohio State Severe Weather Symposium, and we're going to dive into that coming up, talking about tornado genesis, how they just kind of the research behind how they're forming. So we're going to dive into that. I'm excited. So let's first kind of talk about your, I saw you were at a conference recently and running and I was like, oh, I have to try to get you on. So what's your background in running? Uh, yeah, I've been running since I was uh, in high school. I ran track and field. Um, I was primarily a jumper. So I did long jump, triple jump and pole vault. Um, but I've always had uh, just uh, an enjoyment factor in running, and I've just loved to get out there and just kind of pound the pavement and just uh, really enjoy it. So I continued running through college, um, ran through all through grad school and uh, onward. So it's been, I don't even know what year I started because I'm thinking about it, but it's definitely like uh, probably 25 plus years. <laughs> what uh, What different parts of the country have you lived in when you were doing this? Um, so I started out growing up north of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. So Philly was uh, kind of my home area. And then I moved out to central Pennsylvania to go to Penn State for my meteorology undergrad degree. I moved out to the University of Oklahoma in Norman. Um, so I spent uh, eight years out there. And currently I'm living in southeastern Ohio. But I have run, you know, all over the country pretty much anytime I go out for a trip or go out uh, storm chasing or do anything like that. I'm always going to be uh, getting a run in somehow. What would you uh, kind of characterize as the differences as in the weather? I mean, do you have a s certain part of the country that you enjoy running in a little bit more weather-wise? I think there's aspects of various different parts of the country that I love. So, um, you know, the Northeast is nice um, many times, but the humidity gets to be a lot over the summer. So that uh, factor kind of takes away from, you know, the pleasantness of a summer run. Uh, the dryness in the central part of the U.S. towards the western part is definitely uh, nice, but then you have to contend with wind. So there's always wind out in the central U.S. Um, so it's kind of like you got to pick your battles, I think. Um, I think the nicest place I've ever run, trying to think, was probably like the Phoenix, Arizona area, but it was winter time, So it wasn't like, you know, 110 degrees out. So kind of winter, summer running? Yes. <laughs> so if you had to pick what would be your ideal weather conditions to run in? So I 
I'm kind of a moderate temperate runner. I'm a little bit of a fair weather friend here. Um, I would say the best conditions for me is like 60 to 65 if it's sunny. Um, and then if it's cloudy, like 65 to 70, I just kind of like that in between. If it gets too hot, I'm not a very prolific sweater, which is might sound appealing, but it's actually not so great when you're trying to keep your body cool when you're running. So if temperatures get much above 80 degrees, I really struggle and I get cramps and stuff like that. So um, I'm kind of like an in-between. And then if it gets too cold and, you know, I have asthma and that kind of flares up once temperatures get below about 25. So there's this kind of nice little sweet spot between, I don't know, I'd say about, you know, 30 to 75, maybe 80 I'll run in. And then on either side of those extremes, I tend to just hit the treadmill instead. That's a pretty big window, though. I mean, that still leaves a lot of room in between there. What about your least favorite type? Is it the wind or the humidity or cold? You know, it's a good, that's a good question. Um, I've run, I, I ran in ice before, which was I probably like the least, uh, the least favorable conditions I've ever run in. When I lived in Oklahoma, we had just all kinds of crazy weather going on. Um, so I would say probably, you know, in terms of what I've actually done, I the, the ice was not fun. But I also don't really like to run in the rain. Um, I don't like when my shoes get wet and I don't like that squishy feeling. So um, I tend to not be a wet person. <laughs> the one thing that I try, try to avoid as much as possible is lightning too, because it's just so unpredictable. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So as far as story, if we have time, not from running, but uh, from something else. (laughs) No, I well, let's hear it. I mean, we got plenty of time. What's the lightning story? Yeah. All right. Well, so I was actually almost struck by lightning for the first and only time in my life, I suppose. Um, Storm chasing this past season, we were uh, on a storm in southern Kansas and um, got out of the car and we were just we were under the anvil. There was no weather immediately like where we were. Um, We were watching a wall cloud and an interesting area in the, um, you know, off to our northwest um and just kind of out with our cameras and then all of a sudden like not even time to respond um i i was wearing sandals and my toes were actually hanging over the front of my sandals and i felt a shock through my feet and the air started to sizzle and flash and bang and it was just the i don't even know where it ended up hitting but it was really really close so kind of freaked out hit the deck a little bit and then jumped back in the car What's, I mean, other than that, because I mean, you've done a lot of storm chasing. I mean, do you uh, remember anything that was even remotely close to that? No, I mean, I've been in situations where there's a lot of cloud to ground lightning happening. And I've been, you know, taking pictures out of the car because you're a little nervous to get out. But this was definitely like an anvil lightning strike. So it was just one of those that was, you know, really going to be intense because it is an anvil strike. So you need a really strong electric field to be able to make the connection there. Um, And that was definitely the closest call with lightning I have ever had in my life. What about uh, the craziest experience when you've been running weather-wise? Is there any crazy stories there? Yeah, I was thinking about this. Um, so, you know, I try to tend to avoid rain and thunderstorms. Um, but I can remember in Oklahoma one time, um, so kind of back up, segue a little bit. The Central Plains have just these wicked cold fronts that happen in, in the transitional seasons of fall and spring. Um, and there was a cold front coming and I remember, so Oklahoma has a really great little mesonet. So I was looking at, all right, where's the front? It was about six 30 in the morning. I'm a morning runner. I, I much prefer to get the morning, you know, to, to get the run out of the way in the morning. 
Um, so I was looking at the mesonet. I'm like, all right, I can do it. I can do my, you know, four miles. It was at that point for that run. Um, and I totally failed. So I went, I left, it was 75 degrees in the morning. So we were like, you know, pre prefrontal warm sector, humid, damp, warm, had a short sleeve shirt and shorts on. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to go for it. And I did not make it. And by the time I got back from my run, it was 38 degrees. <laughs> and yeah, so, so that was pretty crazy and, and wind and a little bit of rain on that one too. Any other crazy stories out there? Cause I mean, it, I'm assuming there's been a couple times where I've done some early morning runs and you can see some of the thunderstorms off, you know, 60, 70 miles away. So you're really not worried about being part of that, but it is really cool to be out there on a run and to watch that. I mean, were you able to experience any of that when you were out there in the plains? Yeah, I, I, um, had every once in a while, like, uh, get caught in a, like sort of pop up thunderstorm, like you're out and you're like, Oh, there's nothing I can do. Um, so nothing overly extreme. Um, I did get caught in sleep one time when I was running up in Vermont. Um, so that was kind of, fun or not so much and being pelted by little sleep balls as you're trying to make your way back. At least I was in warmer clothes that time though. Yeah. The hat will save you on that big time. Cause otherwise it just, I mean, like you said, it just feels like it's just pelting you nonstop. Absolutely. And new so, cheeks and yeah. Uh, so talk a little bit about your research. Like I mentioned, I was able to see your uh, presentation at the Ohio state severe weather symposium um, over the spring and talk about your research that you've done and just kind of what you plan on doing going forward. Cause you just got a huge grant too, uh, at Ohio state. So kind of for anybody that doesn't know what your research is, kind of give us the, the lay of the land with that. Yeah, sure. So I'm an observational scientist. I don't do modeling, um, but I use uh, predominantly rapid scanning radar observations to study tornadoes and the supercell thunderstorms that produce them. I'm mostly uh, looking at the storm mode of supercells, not uh, QLCSs or anything like that, just because uh, sort of legacy where the instrument's located, central plains, we tend to get more um, supercell based tornadoes than QLCS tornadoes. And QLCSs are just really hard to forecast and to get in a good deployment position with enough time to get any data. Um, so basically, you know, we take these mobile radars out, uh, go storm chasing in a sense. I mean, the chasing for scientific purposes is quite different from chasing for, um, you know, kind of hobby interests. But we go out, we deploy the instrument, collect data on, on tornadoes if they're happening or uh, ideally as they're forming. And um, my primary thrust in terms of scientific investigation is sort of twofold. So I am really interested in the time space evolution of rotation as tornadoes are forming um, and particularly looking at how that initial sort of five minutes leading up to the tornado and kind of into the initial intensification of the tornado, how, how, what's happening, um, where's the rotation originating from, um, how, how are things intensifying in terms of, uh, in like a height sense, where are things happening first or last or, or in between. Um, so that's one avenue. And, and basically, um, the, use of rapid scanning radars has really revolutionized our ability to observe 
tornadoes as they're forming. We've had, you know, the modeling side of things, which has kind of guided us uh, uh, pretty nicely and dovetailed actually kind of nicely with the observational uh, side of things that we've been able to secure the last 10 years. Uh, but basically what we're finding pretty much ubiquitously, both in the terms of modeling as well as um, with these really rapid scan uh, observations. And when I say rapid scan, what I mean is that the radar is the dish is spinning, um, it makes 360 degrees every two seconds. So it's really moving around quickly. So we can get volumetric updates on the order of about 20 to 30 seconds, depending upon our scanning strategy. Um, so we're getting basically this new picture of the atmosphere and what the atmosphere is looking like and kind of looking specifically at the tornado, um, you know, every 20 to 30 seconds. And to put that into comparison, your typical um, weather service radar scans the same amount of space in four to five minutes. So we're really getting a lot more information. And what we've found is that um, almost ubiquitously, uh, tornadoes are forming from the ground up or kind of simultaneously uh, over the depth between the surface and kind of the you know lower part of the storm. Um, so you know we need to have storm-based rotation that's increasing from a slightly larger scale perspective. So this would be like the commonly referred to as the low-level mesocyclone. So we need to have that low-level mesocyclone intensify. Um, in order to basically suck up air from below into it. But if you don't have near ground rotation that's present as well, that sucking up process really doesn't uh, doesn't ever manifest into a tornado. And you're not actually creating a tornado in the cloud, but rather you're you're kind of organizing rotation that's physically at the surface or or just adjacent to the surface. Um, in, in a very short time frame, too, actually, you can go from not having a tornado to having basically a full-blown tornado over the lowest, you know, two kilometers or so of the atmosphere in a time frame of 30 to 60 seconds. So it's really fast. So we talked a little about like the QLCS. Those are quasi-linear convective system, which is basically like a line of thunderstorms where when you're talking about the supercells, for anybody that doesn't know, it's those individual clusters of storms where it's basically fueling off of the environment. Uh, for that rotation to be near surface, is that basic, do you have any hypothesis as whether that is, um, whether it's environmental or is that more potentially topographical, like with the topography of the land? Yeah, those are really good questions. And, um, you know, Formally, the definition of a supercell is a rotating thunderstorm. So it creates this, we have this like updraft where it's rotating itself. So you might kind of think initially like, oh, well, you know, if the storm itself is rotating, then that makes sense that it's creating a tornado. Um, but actually that mid-level rotation is completely separate from the process, or I should say the processes that form that mid-level rotation in the thunderstorm itself are actually quite separate from the rotation that ends up forming and feeding the tornado. Um, there are several different mechanisms that we are at least hypothesizing can contribute to that. And it's my personal feeling that um, this is a problem where you have sort of multiple ways to produce the same outcome. A good colleague of mine said, you throw in the ingredients in different ways and sort of in you know different types and you put it in the oven and it all comes out lasagna in the end. So, you know, you get this outcome that's the same, but the way to actually get to that outcome can be different. Um, so one of the, one of the theories is that um, this could be perhaps environmentally derived. Uh, so some of the really you know high resolution numerical modeling studies that one particular group is doing, um, Bryce Kofer and and you know, Bryce Kofer's in North Carolina and then Johannes Dahl and um, uh, Yannick Fischer. They're they're all kind of in, in this kind of camp of environmental uh, vorticity, vorticity meaning ambient 
rotation that's contributing at a very low level and basically getting kind of tilted, meaning reoriented from like spin like a bicycle tire to spin more like um, like a, a top or like a DVD or a record player for old school people. Um, and so that's one possibility. And that tilting occurs basically in the gradient or the kind of space between the updraft and the downdraft of the storm. Um, so that's one mechanism. Another possibility is that it's derived from friction. So the, the friction in the vicinity of the ground, basically you have air that gets much slower where there's trees and foam poles and houses and even grass. Um, and then the air immediately above that is a lot faster. So again, it creates this rotation like a bike tire that if you get that low level mesocyclone that I refer to this area of, of basically like one kilometer or so above the ground that's spinning kind of quickly within the storm, um, that can kind of ingest that spin and again, sort of tilt it in that interface between the upward moving air and the downward moving air behind it and the what we refer to as the rear flank downdraft. So that's the second mechanism. And then the third mechanism, which has been historically um, what people are attributing this to is through this generation, again, of, of horizontally oriented vorticity that is from coming from the forward part of the storm. So where a lot of the rain is being generated kind of ahead and typically in a directional sense, like to the northeast of the updraft, you have downward moving air where the rain is, you have kind of buoyant upward moving air just ahead of the rain kind of being sucked into the storm from the east. Um, and then so you have this downward moving air next to this upward moving air, which again creates that spin kind of in a bike tire sense. And then the storm itself actually kind of sucks that around the backside of the mesocyclone and in the vicinity of that rear flank downdraft, that downward moving of air kind of in the backside of the storm, it transports that spin downward and again, kind of tilts it in the interface between that downward moving RFD air and the updraft air. So those are the three kind of prevalent um, um, uh, theories, I guess you would say. Um, there is also the possibility, perhaps even likelihood that uh, in certain instances, at least, you can have terrain enhancement of near ground rotation. Um, this is particularly common in storms that actually are not supercells. So oftentimes you can get a scenario where you have rotation that's that's due to the lay of the land. And then if you just get an updraft or a developing storm to move over it, it can actually suck up that rotation and again, create a tornado. But there is some evidence that this may um, be contributing to even supercellular tornadoes at some points in time as well. Interesting that they're all kind of Kind of there's like you mentioned the kind of lasagna doesn't matter how you get there as long as they come together. When you were started to do the research, I mean, did what because this is your expertise? Did you know going into it that there was so much rotation at the lowest level right near the surface going into it? And did this basically confirm that, or was it something that kind of just reinforced everything? Yeah. So when I first started to dabble in this problem, I was a graduate student. Um, so this is uh, like ten years plus ago now. Um, and I had a colleague of mine, Mike French, who kind of started this path forward um, with a different radar, but he found in just a, you know, a handful of cases that it was likely that this sort of top-down perception is due to um, a problem with the radar scanning too slowly. And basically you have these sort of ambient little spin-ups higher up in the storm that the radar captures. And then because it's not sampling, it doesn't see that that spin-up actually dies before the tornado forms and it kind of connects the dots in a false way uh, to create this perception of a top-down um, uh, formation mechanism. So going into it, I kind of had a feeling that at least some tornadoes were going going to form um, 
in a non-descending fashion. I just wasn't sure how um, consistent things were going to be from case to case. And now um, between my work and, and Mike's work and a handful of others, um, we're up to roughly about 15 cases or so, which, you know, from a statistical sense is not statistically robust. Um, but from a case study sense, you would at least expect to find, you know, some blend of things happening if it were actually occurring in that way in the environment. And and really, we found one case that could perhaps be argued that it's a top-down case. Um, and interestingly, um, that one case, it was contingent upon how you define a tornadic vortex uh, signature. So just sort of depending on what thresholds you're using, how strong of rotation you're using, um, you could get either a top-down or a bottom-up um, process. And for, for the other cases that we've investigated, it was pretty clear in all of the different metrics that we've used that it was a, a non-descending. And it, it's either like, you know, again, starting from the bottom up or kind of simultaneously within 30 to 60 seconds, you get rotation kind of everywhere. So instead of seeing that you know, strong rotation at the ground kind of building its way upward with time, you're just seeing, bam, all of a sudden you have super strong rotation everywhere. And you mentioned too how the just the time in between the scans because it's you mentioned four to five minutes if you're using National Weather Service radar, but with you guys using the mobile Doppler units uh, or Doppler on wheels, you're able to scan like you said about every two minutes, getting images twenty to thirty seconds. But not only that, but it's the angle of tilt too because at what angle are you like how high in the atmosphere are you scanning basically? Yeah, that's a, an excellent point here. Um, when you're you're looking at radar data from the Weather Service. Unless you're quite close to the radar, um, the way a radar works is it actually has to like tilt its antenna slightly above the horizon in order to get over things like trees and buildings and so forth. So what that means is the farther away you get from the radar, the higher the beam is. So for example, like here in the Columbus area, um, the closest radar to us is in Wilmington and the beam height over Columbus is between five and 6,000 feet above the ground, depending upon where exactly you are. Um, so clearly, I mean, it's pretty high up. And we need to use these mobile radars so that we can actually go close to the storm and be within, you know, three kilometers or so of the storm so that we can actually uh, see very near ground rotation. So some of the cases that I've looked at, probably half of them, have had um, scenarios where we've been in a deployment spot that's slightly elevated and we can actually scan parallel to the horizon. Um, so in those cases, our beam is, you know, only tens of meters above the ground. Um, some other cases were a little bit higher, maybe like one to 200 meters or so, but still we're, you know, we're, we're able to complete the picture a lot more effectively when we take the radar out to the field, um, because then we can definitely see what's happening at these lower levels and very clearly say, yeah, like this is, this is what's happening. We don't have this block of several, you know, hundreds of meters or thousands of feet, um, where we just don't have observations. So it's pretty clear. And I think a lot of people too, I mean, the, visually from what they've learned growing up, you think the tornado, I mean, you see the condensation funnel coming down. So people think it's coming from the cloud down, but the other way around, I mean, it's, it's really remarkable uh, to kind of flip everything on its head almost. So you also just got a huge grant at Ohio State. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm actually going to just backtrack a smidgen and talk and address your funnel cloud comment okay. here because it's, because it's important. And I think you know, that is what drives people to 
have this perception of top-down rotation. Um, but really, the funnel cloud is forming through a, a variety of different, or there's a variety of different factors that contribute to whether or not a funnel cloud even forms. And one of those is how saturated the air is. One of them is how intense the rotation is. Um, but basically, because you, you know, air cools as you go up, your cloud base is going to be saturated. So your air temperature equals your, your dew point temperature. If you instigate any kind of rotation, it actually causes a scenario where the pressure decreases and it allows saturation to occur at a slightly uh, offset dew point temperature uh, scenario. So this is going to be happening first at cloud base. And then basically the stronger the rotation is, even if you have equal amount of rotation entirely through your whole column between the ground and the cloud base, your rotation is going to condense first at cloud base. And then the stronger it gets, it's going to cause that con condensation to basically kind of come lower and lower to the ground. So that's why we see that. But in, in actuality, um, you know, in many events, not all events, but in many events, um, if there's a funnel cloud, there's probably already rotation at ground level to begin with. Interesting. So, there's that. Um, so now for the the grant piece of this, yes, um, I was just successful at securing a really um, pretty exciting grant that was internally motivated through Ohio State. So they basically, the university put out a call for proposals and said, you know, we have money we want to give you. Tell us your ideas of why we should give you this money. Um, and so I proposed to uh, develop a mobile radar and bring it to Ohio State for use for a combination of meteorological research as well as um, like ECE, electrical engineering research as well. Um, so this is super exciting for OSU and for the Columbus area, which means basically that we will be able to take this instrument to uh, not only get out locally and perhaps in help inform our local National Weather Service offices of what we're seeing in terms of, you know, any kind of damaging wind events or perhaps even looking at um, um, other kinds of events like snow events or rainfall events. Um, but we're going to be able to take it to the Central Plains and do storm chasing. We're going to be able to take it to the lakes and do lake effect snow studies. We could even take it out west and do wildfire studies or to the East Coast and do tropical cyclone studies as well. Um, so there's a whole uh, plethora of possibilities here that this instrument opens. And um, we're really excited about it, looking forward to getting a new cohort of students coming in, uh, developing some coursework that's going to uh, teach more about the radar and about how they use it and about how it works. Um, and yeah, so it's a really exciting time right now. That is really, really exciting because I always had, and the reason I was mentioning the topography is, um, the Xenia area. I forget what the, I believe it was the Shawnee Indians that they would call, call it the Valley of Winds because they would always have these, uh, just um, in the summertime dust devils or, um, and there was always tend to be the same track of the storms in that general area. And where I grew up in Western Ohio, even farther West than that. We've had several tornadoes that their paths almost line up. And in Ohio, we don't get as many. So it was always kind of interesting to see if there was anything with the topography that kind of led to those tornadoes, at least starting in that general area. So I'm excited for this. I mean, I, I wish that I was uh, going back to school as an undergrad because it would be so awesome to have that. Um, is there any sort of timeline for Ohio State to get the Doppler on wheels? Yeah, so I mean, right now we have to go through the process of actually acquiring the instrument. Um, so we have to, you know, put out bids and see who can deliver something that we can ultimately um, use. Um, so roughly, you know, and then obviously you got to 
develop the technology. I mean, the technology is not brand new or anything, but you know, you have to develop the instrument, procure all the parts and so forth. And sometimes some of these parts are very specialized parts and it takes a little bit of time. So I'm expecting about two years from now. So 2025 timeframe, um, it would be fantastic if we could get it by like spring 2025 um, so that we could go out and actually collect some data. Um, you know, that's, that's an ambitious goal. I would say a little bit more comfortably like two years from fall of 23, which is where we're at right now. So fall 25 or so. That's also really cool. I didn't, I mean, never thought about that too with the lake effect snow too, because that's, I mean, have they done very many studies with the Doppler on wheels doing like the rapid scans with lake effect snow? So there have been mobile radar based studies that have looked at um, like the kinematics of snow bands as they're forming over the lakes. Um, nothing that has been rapid scanned to my knowledge though. So the rapid scan aspect would be uh, new here and, you know, can, it, it's basically wintertime convection when you get these lake effect snow bands. So things are forming still pretty quickly. Um, so it'll be kind of interesting to see. Um, and this instrument will also be what we refer to as dual polarized. So basically you get additional information back um, rather than just your standard reflectivity and your standard velocities that you typically see. We can actually put together uh, kind of more of a view of the size and the shapes of the types of things that are falling from the sky. Are they snowflakes? Are they sleet? Are they hail? Is it rain? Um, what's going on. And then we can kind of uh, decipher even in some sense, like where snow growth regimes are in terms of winter precip, um, in terms of severe weather, we can definitely identify locations of hail and storms and, and, you know, things like that. So it's pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was stoked when I got to Ohio state, just, uh, it was one of the, wasn't, I would, I would, don't know if I put it in the top three meteorological schools in the country when I first went there, but I mean, to have something like this, I think that it'll be huge to really solidify how well uh, the program is at Ohio State. So I'm I'm excited for the future of the uh, the program there. Um, so we'll uh, kind of wrap things up. A couple of other last minute running questions, and then we'll let you go. Um, if you had to pick three different characteristics, if you're going out on a run, whether it's trail, mountain, streams, like the scenery, wildlife, what would you pick as far as the three ideal characteristics going out on a run? Yeah, I love nature. So I definitely would like something with some rolling hills. Um, I, if I can be by water, that's fantastic. Um, even if it's just a stream, uh, I really, you know, like streams and waterfalls. And there's some really great places in New England where I've run where um, it's just, you know, some trail running and you have these rolling hills and just fantastic lush green forests. Um, so I think yeah, like green forest, water, not too much terrain, but maybe a little bit. Those would be my favorite. Whoa, that scared me too. Got a quick lightning delay before we get back to the episode. And this is a great chance to hit that subscribe button, whether it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. And that way you're notified when a new episode of Weathering the Run comes out, which is every other Wednesday morning. And maybe you know someone that this story could relate to. Share it with them. Maybe you got a great story yourself. Let me know about it. Weatheringtherun at gmail.com. And if you haven't done so yet, leave a review. Rate the podcast because it is so helpful for others to find Weathering the Run. It only takes 30 or 60 seconds. And thank you to everyone that's done so already. Right now, back to the episode. Uh, do you have any funny stories of running mishaps? I know you talked about like going out for the run before the cold front came through and it caught you off guard. Any other funny stories to share? Um... Not so much. I've had a couple twisted ankles that have ended up like, you know, having me laugh at myself or sliding on the ice. I will say, so that that's, that time that I was running in the ice storm, um, I was newly married at the time and I made my husband uh, come for a run with me uh, and we made it successfully through the run and then we were cooling down and we had just, um, we 
had lived in, we were living in, a, in an apartment complex and had just gone in to grab some water and I kind of take a walk around and cool down. Um, and as we were doing, you know, our, our cool lap, um, he slipped on the ice and threw his water straight up in the air and he got all wet from the water and the cup rolled under a car and I was there just like dying laughing and he, he actually really got mad at me and didn't think it was so funny. But um, I think that's probably my favorite. Uh, what about your like a uh, balance between obviously with your professional career, family life, and just if you're going out there storm chasing? I mean, how do you are you just getting up and going out as early as possible, basically? Yeah, I mean, so it is a balance, and um, I prioritize physical activity in my day. I have to have it. If I don't have it, I get to be a kind of cranky person. Uh, so some people, you know, need food. Some people need sleep. I need exercise. Um, and, you know, I'm the mother of three little girls. My oldest is uh, going to be 11 soon, and then my youngest is four. So there's mom life. There's work life. There's physical activity life. Um and I just did my first triathlon actually this past spring, which was totally amazing, um, which required kind of a different set of training um, that I actually really loved. Uh, but yeah, I prioritize uh, getting up in the morning and getting it done. So for example, you know, this morning I was up at five o'clock and I was running in the dark for about, you know, 45 minutes between about 5.15 and six o'clock. And then, you know, my kids get up and get everybody ready for school and get them on the bus and then kind of start my day and go to work. So that's... Uh, that's my sort of typical itinerary to get it all done as early as possible. Um, exactly. I am a gearhead. It's just like sometimes if you're out on a run, some piece of gear may make or break the run. Is there any piece of gear that you use as go to on a typical run? Yeah. I mean, so my shoes are super important. I do suffer from shin splints, um, periodically if I don't have the right shoes or knee problems. So I have to have a pair of, of good shoes. So right now I'm wearing Mizunos. Mizunos are my favorite running shoes. They just work with my feet, good arch support. Um, so shoes are clutch. Um, and then I also, since I run in the dark, um, have to have a headlamp. So that's a little less, you know, you can get any kind of headlamp and it, and it generally works, but also, you know, need to have some kind of reflective gear on as well. So, um, you know, those are kind of my, my top priorities there, but the shoes above all else are, are key in my book. Any other crazy weather stories? I mean, you had the lightning one, any other, any other crazy tornado stories? Oh man, there's plenty of tornado crazy stories that I could, I could tell. Um, I actually did want to kind of talk about the terrain uh, stuff that you were mentioning, because that's another area of, of uh, interest and expertise that I have. I, I recently got a, well, not so recently anymore, but I, I had a grant to study uh, terrain impacts on tornadoes and, and variations in surface roughness. Um, and so, you know, I, I really liked what you said in that, like, there seemed to be some consistency in tracks, particularly over, you know, the Xenia area or the Western Ohio area. Um, and there definitely is evidence to suggest that certain terrain configurations are more um, likely to modify the environmental parameters in a way that makes it favorable for tornado formation. And there are certain hot spots in different parts of the country. Uh, so like uh, Oklahoma, you have more right there. And I can't, you know, there's just track after track after track that basically goes in some way, shape or form right through more. Um, and there's actually a mountain range uh, upwind from that in southwestern Oklahoma. And believe it or not, Oklahoma does actually have a small mountain range. The vertical elevation relief is roughly on the order of about 1500 feet or so. So they're prominent. You can see them uh, on the horizon. And um, it's kind of interesting. I would really like to do a study to go to kind of check with and without terrain, um, see what would happen in terms of the overall storm paths, if we could recreate 
um, if we recreate that or if, or if not, because I suspect that there's some kind of forcing that happens over the mountains that ends up having, you know, storms that are initiating in one kind of general location that end up having a trajectory under the certain, you know, favorable wind conditions in the atmosphere that end up taking the storm over central Oklahoma. Um, and then there's another place in, uh, in Alabama, um, all kinds of, you know, all kinds of really cool terrain stuff that can happen um, when you when you have severe weather interacting with terrain. Yeah. And you mentioned friction, too. I mean, if you have the topography and the the friction aspect, too, if you have open farm fields right next to either just not necessarily metropolitan areas, but maybe a developed area or where there's more vegetation as far as trees, that also would provide just additional friction in one spot or a different fetch than in maybe a mile or two in the other direction. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's some ongoing work that I'm doing with some students as well to investigate if there's um, kind of any preference of tornadoes to form um, in a, an area where locally surface roughness is either lower or higher. Um, and some preliminary results are kind of interesting um, and do suggest that there might be something going on, but it's a little too early for me to feel comfortable like diverge or divulging what that is. Um, but I have seen some pretty cool videos and some pictures of uh, tornadoes at like encountered and this is typically weaker tornadoes um, but they encounter like a grove of trees or something like that and they basically kind of like get hung up almost on that grove of trees and then as the sort of parent cyclone moves over then they sort of jump the forest and then um you know form on the other side now this is very local scale you know we're talking about maybe like a half an acre of trees or something like that so nothing huge um but yeah i mean it definitely uh, has been demonstrated to be impacted Tornadoes have been demonstrated to be impacted by terrain, by surface roughness gradients. When you're using the Doppler line wheels, how far out does that radar typically uh, receive the data for? Yeah, so um, there's actually, there's a couple of different teams that have these mobile radars. The Doppler on wheels specifically refers to a group of, of radars that are um, now owned by the University of Illinois. Um, and so they typically will, they, they have a pretty high power. So the how far out you can go is dependent upon uh, a lot of factors, but one of those factors is how much transmit power the instrument has. Um, so, the, so the DAOs actually have pretty strong transmit power and can collect data pretty effectively out to, you know, 60, I'll say 60 kilometers or so. <clears throat> the radars that I have used are lower power radars. Um, so those tend to be, you know, we can get 30 to 45 uh, kilometers or so much after that, um, things start to kind of break down a little bit and it's a little less usable, um, both in terms of the, the power return that we're getting back, but also um, just in terms of the overall quality of the data, the resolution that we're returning from, uh, like the, the beam basically gets wider as you go away from the radar instrument itself. And so it kind of deteriorates the quality of the observations. So we try to deploy um, within, you know, 10 kilometers or so. And, you know, an ideal deployment is going to be, we set up the radar, the tornado or a storm kind of comes close to us, maybe gets within two kilometers or so, and then kind of passes on the other side. And then we end up, you know, in an ideal world playing leapfrog. And then we kind of, you know, go ahead and I don't want to say speed because we're trying to obey the, you know, the laws of the land here, but, you know, quickly try to get ahead of the storm and then redeploy. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Roads can be a total pain in the butt and they don't really take you where you want to go in many cases. Especially in the central plains. Cause I mean, they will just kind of zigzag wherever. Yeah, uh, any other final, and... right, right. Anything else you want to add here? No, 
I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I love running and I love tornadoes and I love being able to kind of do both. And, uh, you know, nothing's greater to me than, uh, you know, having a, a great conference or going out storm chasing. And then, you know, the next morning, you know, storm chasing, you're in a car for, for 12 to 16 hours at a time. So I will like get itchy and crazy if I don't have some kind of physical outlet. So, you know, those days sometimes are my best running days and I just, you know, hit the pavement hard and just go fast and go long. So it's a great way to kind of blend my two uh, primary interests. When you know there's going to be like a high active day with tornadoes or it's predicted to be that way, do you find yourself more energized that morning? Like, are you finding yourself running faster or farther if you, as long as you're back in time, obviously, but do you feel extra energy on days like that? Yeah, there are definitely sometimes days when like you're just kind of pumped up because of, you know, external circumstances or, you know, storms might be one of those like, oh, is it going to be a good day, you know, and your adrenaline's already kind of going. So that always kind of helps scoot you along a little bit faster and give you a little bit more endurance. Cool. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. I know your time's very valuable. Again, this is uh, Dr. Jana Hauser with Ohio State University. And I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe I'll have to try to come back and get my master's there and try to study the topography with the uh the doppler sounds good (laughs) thank you so much for hosting me today thanks have a great day well hopefully you enjoyed that episode and i know i really did learn some things hopefully you learned some things from that and uh, i'm really excited to continue this mini series talking to other meteorologists who also run just to maybe learn a few new things here talk to other runners across other parts of the country and i have about three other ones that I know lined up for the upcoming episodes. So stay tuned. We'll see you back here in a couple of weeks. Until then, see you on the trail.